Hello and welcome to Making UX Work, the Give Good UX podcast. I'm your host, Joe Natoli, and our focus here is on folks like you doing real, often unglamorous, UX work in the real world. You'll hear about their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Today, my guest is Doug Collins. Aside from being one of the most positive and generous people I've ever met, Doug's UX work spans a variety of industries ranging from the financial world to sports entertainment. He currently works as the sole UX engineer at Trust Company of America, in charge of directing every aspect of the company's online design and user experience presence. They say necessity is the mother of invention, and in Doug's case, as you'll hear, that's true. You'll also hear how he overcame some extremely difficult circumstances through belief, positivity, and sheer will. Here's my conversation with Doug Collins on Making UX Work. So, Doug, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Always uh, happy to get to uh, make some new connections. And, and this is the first time we've had a chance to actually talk. We've done a lot of chatting online, but always good to, uh, to put a voice with a face so to speak. Yeah, same here. Same here. And, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's always a pleasant surprise to meet somebody who's um, sort of as vocal as you are. <laughs> uh, meaning, you know, myself, I, I always feel like I talk too much, but I really feel like, you know, we're, we're sort of of like minds when I see your comments and I see uh, the advice, you know, that you give people in the, in the UX mastery community. And uh, so, I don't know. I just try to recognize that when I see it. Yeah. You know, uh, for me, at least, you you were actually one of my very first UX Twitter follows. I, one of the first people I found online that was following uh, when I first got into Twitter and, uh, yeah. you know, was very uh, pleasantly surprised to find you on the UX Mastery community when I was over there. Seeing someone who actually set a good example of being open and available and looking to help people out was very good for me. You know, I certainly have some experience, but, you know, I'm, I'm not overly advanced, so to speak. Um, certainly not to the, to the level of career that, that, that you yourself are at. Uh, you're not. I mean, you, like you said, you're not new. I mean, if, right. if, if, if what I read online is correct, I mean, you've been doing this for, what, 18 years? Yeah, well, so I started uh, doing web development uh, when I was 15. Wow. And uh, just uh, have kind of tinkered with it on and off since then. I've been doing freelance projects of work and that type of thing. Hasn't always been UX focused. Uh, it's really only been over the last probably seven or so years that I really got a focus on on UX. Uh, so you know, very good development experience, but it's been kind of all over the place too. So <laughs> it's been a very varied career. <laughs> so what I mean, if you started out in development, you started out on the, on the technical side of things. How did you sort of transition over or slide into, as the case may be, um, UX work? Oh, goodness. Well, so initially I just picked up uh, uh, web development as sort of a hobby and, and did some freelance work. Uh, my very first website was for one of my friend's dads. Uh, that was a website that was so bad, it was probably uh, not even worth the, the money that he actually paid me for. <laughs> but, everyone's, everyone's got one or ten. <laughs> yeah. We don't talk about that one anymore. Um, <laughs> Um, but I kind of stuck with it, and actually, uh, 2004, I, I got a job working with the uh, Denver Broncos. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was very fun. That was kind of my very first experience into it because I was a writer for them, but I also did web design work. I helped out actually designing some of their newer sections, and at that point in time, that was very much the world of uh, sort of the new open internet where things were were really changing. UX still wasn't really 
talked about as a, or at least widely talked about as a discipline. Um, but right, it was something right. that, uh, you know, making the site accessible and easy to use was, was a very big, important part of the work we were doing back then. Um, and I kind of actually tried to make it as a journalist uh, for a while from about 2004 to 2009. I was out there writing and doing freelance work. And uh, you know, that was uh, a, a lot of fun. But in 2009, the economic crisis hit full force. Huh, yeah. And in Denver, the Rocky Mountain News shut down which meant that the market was flooded with these writers that were uh, you know, very talented, you know, had 20 years of experience, and really willing to work for the same price as me. So I ended up yeah. working at a call center at Nordstrom Bank, um, actually at that point in time, which is the credit division of Nordstrom. Wow. Um, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting job. I was taking phone calls. Eye-opening? <laughs> oh, oh, yes. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <In what ways? laughs> well, I'd, I'd done customer service work before, but I'd never really worked on the phone. So I'd always worked kind of in-store. I had been an operations manager for Circuit City, and I'd worked retail jobs at Sears and JCPenney's and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And those sort of interactions, you know, you're there face-to-face with someone, and there's a certain level of uh, respect, for the most part, that, that you get. Um, even that sort of base level of respect sort of deteriorates sometimes when you're talking to somebody on the phone, and they don't, they don't have to look you in the eye and say these things, and you hear some terrible things. Yeah, I, I could believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, too, though, the Nordstrom customers were, were generally really, really quite nice, and actually, I think because of the clientele that they normally serve, uh, we probably had less of that than some call centers did, Yeah, uh, but we were still a credit card company, and that meant that we had to follow all the banking rules and regulations and get and receive very specific information to make sure we were making good notes on the accounts and sort of following all of these rules. And at the time, what we had uh, to kind of help us guide that was a site that was made in Microsoft front page, 2004. Wow, blast from the past. I remember that. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, and, not, <laughs> and not a good blast. <laughs> the person who had made it had, had obviously, they had done their best, but it didn't really work to find and, and really help us with our job. It took forever to find even the most basic information. Um, you know, we had certain types of notes that we were making on account routinely that we'd have to type from scratch every time, certain procedures we'd have to follow that, you know, if we couldn't find them quickly, we'd have a customer on hold for, you know, four or five minutes while we were looking for these procedures through this myriad uh, QuickBooks. So what I did uh, was I started to make a tool to make my job easier Yeah, yeah. Um, that would allow me to quickly find the things that I use most commonly to access those sort of workflows and, and different pieces. And originally it was just for me because I wanted to be good at my job. I wanted to keep moving up, but uh, I ended up showing it to a friend who said, hey, this is great. Can I use that? Wow. <laughs> and mind you, I was building this tool between phone calls using Notepad uh, <laughs> and nothing else <laughs> at the time. So it was a great learning experience because I had to find all sorts of different ways to code things with only Notepad. You're a pioneer. Oh, it was oh, it was wonderful. It was fun because I got to <laughs> got to work on on a really unique project, and and it was actually something that over the course of about three or four years, I showed it to my manager, and eventually got a chance to pitch it to uh, Nordstrom Bank's CEO, uh, who liked the idea so much. He said, "Okay, go do it." Wow. Which I really wasn't prepared for. Right now, what? <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Oh, okay." Well, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't quite ready for that. And uh, they put me in charge of creating this uh, this sort of new operational replacement for what we had called our, our QuickBook, which was the uh, 
the front page guide. Uh, so we ended up doing a, a custom coding sort of uh, version of, of that for all the different departments for customer service and collections and fraud and that sort of thing, which was my first real big shift from doing this sort of customer service type work to getting into the world of UX because it was all focused on how can we make things faster for the customer. Right. And in the end, we were able to knock off about, on average, about 34 seconds per call, which when you take thousands of calls per day, that adds up to huge. Yeah, millions of dollars a year in cost savings. So, and I have no idea if it's still used. Nordstrom Bank was, was sold, I think, last year uh, to, I forget, a, a large credit card company. And uh, most of the staff that I worked with was was laid off or left. So I, I have no idea if it's still in use back there, but I hope it is because it was a really good tool and something I was very proud of. It certainly sounds like a pretty massive shift between, you know, where you were, where you started, right? And especially the kind of work that you were doing and your acumen up to then. That's a pretty huge leap yeah. directly into not only coding and design on a different level, but thinking about usability, accessibility, and user experience issues on a whole different level. And what's really interesting to me about that is that I, I swear to you, this is the third conversation I've had in about five days <laughs> where someone has told me a story about how sort of in the wild west days of their, their careers, they happened upon a situation where what they needed didn't exist. So they said, okay, I, I guess I'm going to have to, to build something. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's one of the, the main reasons why you see such varied backgrounds now starting to get into UX rules because these great ideas can come from anywhere. Yeah. And learning to code and learning to design to a certain extent, yeah, there, there's some natural born talents involved, but a lot of that can be can be nurtured and can be learned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a really wonderful opportunity for the people that are the problem solvers of the world to get involved. And that's why I'm always encouraging people that I see out there to say, you know, who say, oh, you know, I want to get involved. I'm not really sure what I want to do. You know, get out there, find a problem. Learn to solve it. Start working. Don't wait. Start now. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the key, right? The, one of the things that, that frustrates me endlessly is how discouraged people get about approaching design or approaching UX because they say, well, I don't have the experience for that. I don't have the education for that. I don't have the chops for that. And I think that's because the messages that, that so many people receive are all about the skill set. They're all about the technology. They're all about checking these boxes of, okay, I've taken these steps and now I can be a UX professional. Right. And the thing that you're talking about, right, the story you just told is the core of doing this work. It's how you think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think there's such a culture of, of education, um, especially in the United States these days, where, yeah. you know, you look at these, these job postings and say, oh, you have to have a BA in HCI or you, you have to have data analytics you know, experience that people look at these and they just you know, kind of immediately throw those job openings out the window and say, well, I don't have that. I can't do that. Right. But it's entirely possible to get into this line of work if you're willing to put in the work yourself. I have never taken a formal coding or web design class. Everything that I've learned has been entirely self-taught. And I'm very lucky, uh, I acknowledge, to be in the position that, I, that I'm at. Right. But I think that my personal basis of being someone who likes to find problems, likes to solve problems, likes to make life easier for people, um, and, and likes to, to see very good, high-quality design is, is what's made me successful, what's kept me learning. And, and those skills are out there, and that drive is out there in so many people. I wish that they would just take that step back and say, yeah, you know, uh, I can do this. It, it's entirely possible for me to get into it, because it is. You don't have to have that 
that sort of you know set in stone uh, education. If you can prove that you can do the work and understand the concepts and be successful, uh, you there's absolutely room for you in the industry. And and uh, you know I think kind of what you're saying with finding those different stories out there. You know, these great ideas can come from anywhere within the organization. Um, it's kind of an incumbent on our you know, employers out there to be listening for those folks as well. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I mean, what if the CEO had said, oh, this is what a call center representative and I'm not going to listen to him. I'd still be back taking phone calls at Nordstrom Bank. <laughs> so. Right. Right. And it's a big part of the reason, at least personally, okay, it's, it's a big part of the reason why I try to chime in on, you know, the UX Mastery community. It's the reason I wanted to do this this private Facebook group that I have um, I, I just feel like there is so much talent out there and some of it is sort of undiscovered, unknown talent. You know, if I hadn't been in situations where people with a lot of experience and in some cases a very sort of high profile um, designers in particular took the time to talk to me and sort of dispel all the myths that I was carrying around in my head about what I was allowed to do, <laughs> you know, based on, on my experience so far, had it not been for that... I don't know that I would have done any of the things that I've done. And that's just never left me. Right. And like you, I see a culture right now that is very intent on putting people in boxes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as far as putting people in boxes, absolutely. And even within the UX world, there are so many sort of different boxes that you can try and put yourself in, too. Yeah. You got researchers, you've got you know, UX, UI designers, you've got, you know, people that are, are very specialized in, uh, you know, doing UX testing, UX testers. And even sort of within that, there are all these different sort of niches and, and subgenres. I mean, you know, do you want to focus on, you know, virtual reality? Do you want to work for UX with automobiles that don't have, you know, a lot of that sort of writing and attention around them, but have huge growth potentials as well? Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's always bad to put yourself in a box, but there's there's a lot of opportunity out there if you want to focus on something, but you should never let somebody else decide for you what you're going to do with your career, or what you're going to design, or, or what direction you go. That should be totally, totally self-led. Yeah. Do you think, for instance, in your case, what do you think was the combination of, I, I don't know, personal attributes that led you to this is the wrong word, but be sort of fearless in saying, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try this. And you, know, you went to school for journalism, you had a job in a call center, you sort of invented <laughs> <laughs> this piece, which was your way into UX. I mean, what is it that you, you think um, that's part of your personality that, that sort of allows that? Well, I, I think number one, and I think this applies to, to really any base sort of skills you, you need for UX, is you have to have a, a desire to make life easier and, and to help people. Not just yourself, but really to help the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think at a at a base level, that's uh, you know kind of the basic thing that that sort of led me to get into it because I, I saw a system that simply wasn't working, and you know I decided that I was going to make something better and something that I could not only use myself but but share with my coworkers. And you know beyond that, I think there's an intense curiosity, um, a a willingness to always be learning, um, as with anything in the tech world. You know, our, our paradigms are constantly shifting. Everything's constantly changing as people, if you go on Twitter and search for, for UX, you get you know, a thousand articles just, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the top 1200 results. Oh, yeah. There's always new research being done. There's always new writing. Um, so that curiosity to learn um, and, and, you know, dedication to say, I'm going to learn and teach myself and sort of stay at the forefront 
of technology to learn you know the best ways that I can help people and to keep my my skills and my career fresh and I think finally just a, a, a determination that uh, you know you have a good idea and need to stick with it you know this idea that I had was killed officially four times <laughs> by different people at Nordstrom uh, and and I just refused to to take no for an answer I, I, I didn't skirt the rules. You know, I, I wasn't doing anything I wasn't supposed to be doing, uh, but I was very determined that I, I knew that I had something that was, was valuable to add, and I wasn't going to, to give up until I was able to make other people see the value. I, I know the way that I put it at first made it sound like an overnight success, but it was not an overnight success. Nothing, nothing ever is. Yeah, oh, no, no. And that, I, I think a lot of people will especially see people that are new in the UX world and they'll say, oh, you know, this person got there without putting in a whole lot of work. It must be super easy. It's, it's not easy, but it is worth it. You know, it was one of those things where you know, I stuck with it and, and it took probably what, three years, four years before it was finally approved and I was given the okay to go ahead with it. So. What kind of nose did you hear? What reasons or, or <laughs> excuses? <laughs> or <laughs> what are you given? Well, I want to acknowledge first that some of these no's were for very valid reasons. <laughs> um, the very first no that I heard was um, because it wasn't an approved tool within the company. So I was using something that I created that hadn't been vetted by our IT department, that sort of thing. And I, and I understand that from a, you know, IT, you know, sort of security perspective sure. uh, of, of why they would be wary of that. But I also knew that there wasn't anything in there that was really going to cause any potential issues. There wasn't even any, I couldn't even do any real, real JavaScript at that point. It was all pretty much straight basic HTML and CSS and it wasn't exposed to any outside networks. So mm-hmm. um, that was kind of the first, first sort of no that I got. The second no that I got was actually after I started sharing it and had been given the okay by my, my manager to share it. We didn't have a sort of a home for it to live on. So I was uh, essentially sharing it from my computer, giving people my IP address and saying, if you go you know, to this IP address slash fashion platform is what I ended up calling it. And uh, you know, going there, you can use the tool whenever I'm, I'm in the office and whenever my computer is turned on. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like that very much. And I, again, I understand that. But that was uh, as much of a way to share the tool and get some uh, eyeballs behind it and get some momentum going towards it and get people to really you know, buy into it. Um, so, you know, it kept going, you know, from there, it became an issue of, well, if, if not everyone can use it, then nobody should use it, yourself included. Um, so sort of the, you didn't bring enough chewing gum for everyone uh, <laughs> <laughs> in right. class. Right. Uh, so, and then I think the, uh, the last no is escaping me, but it was more along the same security lines of what I had talked about before. Yeah. So in each one of these instances, you, you just sort of got back up and said, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> I was always able to find a way to sort of weasel myself back in. And that wasn't because. Well, I mean, that was a little bit because I was just sort of determined about things, but it was also because of the value of the idea, right? Yeah. Everybody who saw this tool in, in practice liked it, loved it, wanted it to work. They just couldn't figure out how to get it to work. Um, and, and part of that was because I was a call center rep. I didn't have access to the people in, in our IT department, to our 
you know, development managers, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, this was a, an idea that came up by this failed journalist in IT um, <laughs> sitting there on the phone making this between his calls. So there was a lot of a lot of reticence. Yeah, who the heck is this kid? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, you know, the funny thing was is that my dad had actually worked for Nordstrom Bank for probably 20 years um, before I started working there. It was very close to 20 years. I think it might have been 20 when he when he uh, finally passed on. But um, there were people in the building that had known me since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. So it was, I wasn't totally unknown, and I think maybe that helped a little bit, but I still didn't know the right people in the organization to get this idea sort of up the ladder. Yeah. How about, out of curiosity, do you think any of that is youth? Yeah, I think so. You know, technology's seen as kind of a young man's game. Um, and, and now that my hair is starting to, to fall away a little bit, especially with me, I've got a, I've got a five month old at home who's accelerating the process, but it's absolutely <laughs> constant adventure. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. He's a wonderful kid and, and a great adventure, but, uh, you know, the, the hair isn't sticking around, yeah. but, uh, you know, I'm starting to, starting to think about that. And I've had conversations, you know, my mother-in-law is a, is a QA tester. Uh, for a medical device ah. company. She's in her 60s. You know, there are people that, most of the people that I work with here at uh, Trust Company of America are are older than me in our development team. Um, so I think there's this sort of view that, yeah, it's a young man's game, but as sort of the young men that, that sort of started the game are getting older, we're, we're starting to become a much more receptive uh, to the wisdom of age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, your perspective changes, certainly. Right. But, you know, I still especially think if, if you have two people, you know, somebody on the job is 20 and somebody on the job is 60, a lot of the times, you know, the, the, the job's going to go to that 20-year-old. And I, I think that's the perception of, you know, technology as being something for, for a younger generation. I don't think that that's, that's right by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think that that's the reality that a lot of people face. And that's one of the reasons why people who are getting into UX, I say, push as hard as you can on your career because yeah. by the time you want to be where you want to be by the time you get to 40 yeah. because there's no guarantees that you're going to get promoted on, you know, past then. Yeah. That, that security, you know, the way things used to be certainly isn't there anymore. There's a large part of the, the early days of my career that I attribute really to sort of the, <laughs> the arrogance of, of, of youth, you know, and it's, and believing <laughs> that, believing that you're right because I was at an ad agency when this little thing called the internet came along <laughs> and I could not convince any of these old men who ran the place that this internet thing was, was anything more than a passing fad. Right. All right. They just, they just weren't buying it. So I just sort of felt like, well, okay, I'll show you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped off the cliff, you know, which in retrospect, I probably would have done differently about 900 ways, but Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think that that belief, to your point, it is tremendously important. And there are days, you know, especially when I'm answering questions or, or trying to field emails, and I don't have nearly enough, as much time as I would like for that stuff. But man, I just feel like I, I always want to be a voice out there saying, no, do it, believe in it, do it, believe in it, do it, believe in it, do it. Right. And anytime, anytime you ask yourself the question, well, you know, I don't know if I should. No, the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, I'll, just go. Right. You know, here in here in Broncos country, we're all we're all Elway fans. And his famous saying when he brought Peyton Manning on board is that there is no Plan B. Right. This was it. We're going for the Super Bowl. We're all in on Peyton Manning. And if it doesn't work out, it's it's going to be a rough few years. Right. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, having 
you know, growing up in Denver and worked for the Broncos and being a, a Broncos fan, it worked out. But I think you have to have sort of that mentality sometimes, um, you know, especially when getting into a creative field that you need to go all in. You need to have that, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this work or or not, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Yeah. And I, I don't have a fallback plan. And that was you know, certainly something for me when I was at Nordstrom, where I was I was in my fallback plan at that point in time. I was yeah, in right. my plan B. So I knew that I was either going to succeed with what I was doing in, in sort of this new tech UX realm, or, or I was just going to stay where I was at. I didn't really have have any other choice. And, and in the end, I really didn't have any choice but to succeed. Um, and I think that that sort of, uh, you know, no plan B mentality um, really helped me push my idea forward because I, I knew that if I was going to make it into sort of the better life that I wanted for myself, uh, that that was the most likely route and the route that uh, I had the skills and, and opportunity to take. Mm-hmm. How much fear w- was wrapped up in that? At least at times where you were sort of in transition, you know, or, or couldn't quite see the road ahead. Well, uh, a lot of fear, um, you know, for, for me, uh, an aspect of the story I don't always talk about in <laughs> at least employment interviews is that I was, I was homeless for part of that, wow. uh, for part of that time when I was working at Nordstrom. No kidding. Yeah. And, and it's not that I had, you know, any sort of drug or substance abuse issues or, you know, mental problems, which a lot of people associate with being homeless. I just made some bad choices. Sure. I should say bad, but that ended up being good. I actually met my wife. Um, shortly after I created my first version of this project. And I didn't know, obviously, she was going to be my wife at the time. She was in Colorado studying uh, divinity at the Isle School of Theology uh-huh. and um, decided that she didn't want to do that. And about six months after I met her, she said, I'm going back to California. Fortunately for me, Nordstrom had a- another office in California that was about an hour and a half away from where my future wife was living at the time. Uh, I just sort of picked up and, and left thinking, okay, well, you know, I'll stay with her for you know, a couple of weeks and, and uh, you know, find a place to be out there, not knowing just how horribly expensive it is to live in California. Yeah. Um, and was just never able, you know, as someone working you know, a very low paying, low wage job with living expenses and that type of thing, was just never able to save up enough money uh, to actually get into a place you know being being homeless is expensive and a lot of people don't don't, don't realize just how expensive it can be where, where did you stay um i slept in my car quite a bit um it was uh, a 1998 ford escort <laughs> uh, so not exactly the roomiest edition yeah. um so I, I slept in my car quite a bit you know when i could afford a hotel which was maybe about half the nights i'd stay there and and if I was lucky enough to be able to go see my girlfriend and, and stay at her place, uh, which didn't happen often, our work schedules were, were kind of crazy, and she was an hour and a half away from where I was working. Um, you know, I'd, I'd spend a night or two at her place, but it was, you know, it was something that uh, there was a lot of fear involved with it. And there was a lot of this sort of, I, I have one chance and, and one opportunity to make this work. And, and I saw that that tool and that trade is as a ticket out of what I was doing. And it would have been very easy for me to say, you know, I'm going to focus on just moving up in the call center and, you know, make a few extra dollars here and, and you know, sort of advance that customer service career. Um, but I had the uh, will to stick with it. Um, as I'm not proud of obviously of the time that you spend homeless. I don't think anybody ever is, but I think it's a, it's a good story to share to tell people that, 
you know, regardless of where you are now, you know, things can work out. That's right. You know, obviously I, I made it in my career. The woman that I chased to California, I eventually chased back to Colorado or at least drug her back to Colorado. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, uh, we ended up married. We have a kid, you know, I'm, I'm in an excellent career now with a, with a great company and, and wonderful peers and, and, you know, great future in front of me. And I own my own house, which is great. <laughs> right. So all of this, I mean, is a, is an obvious testament to, to belief, to sticking with it. I mean, you know, you say, well, maybe it's not something to be proud of. Well, in a way it is, okay, because there are plenty of moments in life in general, okay, not just talking your career, just in life. Right. That will knock the wind out of you. Oh, absolutely. And the only way you ever get to anything good is by finding some way to sort of hang on to that belief and work through it and push and say, no, this is it. I got to make this happen. And it's the most cliche thing in the book, right? The, the, the only time you fail is when you give up. But <laughs> I, I think it's, an, it's a really important lesson as well because it's easy to get disheartened. It's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to feel like this is never going to happen for me. Right. But I think as long as you, you sort of power forward, by and large, it, it's just not true. What you want is out right. there. Right. And, and you have to take advantage of those opportunities that are around you, even in those moments that knock the wind out of you, there's, there's still opportunity. Yeah. There's still a chance. So for, you know, for me, yes, I was living out of my car and, and not in a position that I wanted to be in, but I had a ton of time on my hands. Um, and I spent that time working on, uh, what was a seven year old laptop in 2009, <laughs> mm-hmm. 2010, wow. uh, you know, building up my web development skills, I go to Starbucks or McDonald's and sit on their Wi-Fi and probably annoy the staff for, you know, three or four hours and, and learn what I needed to learn and study what I couldn't study when I was at work to try and build sort of the next step of that piece. Um, so if you look around you and say, even in these moments of, you know, of darkness, so to speak, there's there's those, those pinpricks of light that you can see and those opportunities that you have. Uh, there, there's always a way forward and you, you need to stick with it and you need to believe in yourself. And, and if I take anything from that time in my life, it's that lesson of you're absolutely right. Nobody can stop you, but you, there, there's always a, a possibility of success until you give up. No, that's right. I mean, and that's been, that's certainly been my experience as well. And if, if you do anything long enough, right. I mean, you, you've been doing this for a while. I've been doing this for a while, but you also meet a great number of people, in my case, from a lot of different countries, who have overcome some unbelievable circumstances oh, yeah. to sort of find themselves in the professional world and not only, you know, get there and, and make it work, but excel, okay, become, you know, at the top of their game. Right. It's amazing the, the variety that's out there in that respect, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you know, I'm sure much better than I do. So you've uh, you know, had the opportunity to travel to different places and, and speak in quite a few different countries. So I'm sure you've seen quite a bit more. For me, I'm, I'm a bit uh, hamstrung because I'm, I'm stuck in Denver and I'm a, I'm a team of one. There's nobody else on my UX team. It's, it's just me, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is one of the reasons why I got involved uh, with the online community and, and found you and found UX Mastery and found all my you know, my fun Twitter friends and, and, uh, you know, what users do in their Slack community. Sure. What a gift all that is. Oh, absolutely. It's so, it's so different learning a skill these days because there's all this support out there. You know, if I was trying to learn a new trade back in 1960, 1970, 
you know, it'd be probably whatever books I could find at the library and whatever people within a few mile radius that might have some skills to teach me and, and build that up. But nowadays, there's so much that's out there. There's no excuse for not learning on your own. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you have that support and you have that guidance. Yeah, I agree. And I think I, there's also, I think, a, a trait that, that people carry from designers to UXers to developers to everything in between. There's a natural hunger that's built into these folks, you know, where they're just not resting. And I think that's important, you know, to, to sort of never feel like, okay, well, I got this, right. Right. I've been doing this long enough and I'm established now. And, and well, I got this. I don't need to know anymore. Yeah. I mean, you can, you have to keep learning um, and you have to keep pushing yourself to learn. It's not easy to say, I'm going to learn something new every day, but if you're going to be in this sort of industry where, the technology behind what we do is constantly evolving. Uh, you know, the, the best minds sort of at the forefront of where we work. There are constantly new people emerging with new ideas. If you make that decision that I'm, I'm fine where I am, you're going to stagnate and, and your skills are going to, to get old. And you know, eventually it'll be hard to keep your product and, and yourself sort of relevant, yeah. um, which is why you know, the first thing that I do, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I, my, my morning stand-ups for work are about almost exactly an hour after I come in. Um, and that first hour is always dedicated, of course, to catching up on you know, emails and whatever else is built up overnight. But find, also finding something that I can learn that day. And whether it's an article that I've read or somebody that I talk to, uh, some sort of you know, communication interaction, um, I always make sure that I find at least one new thing every day. Um, and you know, that's, that's the dedication I've made to myself to keep learning at least a 15 minute investment if I'm lucky and have nothing else to do, <laughs> which doesn't happen very often. Yeah, right. But, uh, you know, maybe I could spend, you know, 45 minutes an hour on it, uh, you know, if I'm lucky that day. But that's built into part of my routine. And that's something I always recommend to people building that time to, to build your tool set so that you, you are staying in front. Speaking of routine, how much of a set structured routine do you follow during the day and during the week? Well, it's, it's sort of interesting. At, at, uh, here at Trust Company of America, I am the only UX engineer. So a lot of my routine is very much determined by me. I have a lot of freedom, which is great Yeah. Um, in some respects and, and terrifying in others. So <laughs> a, lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to be self-directed. Um, it's a challenge. Oh, yeah. um, and I think having that routine is, is a big part of it. So, you know, we have certain meetings that come throughout the week that are always scheduled. Um, but sort of the nature of what we've been doing, we had an old product that essentially was a, a desktop application that we were porting over to uh, this new um, web app that we have that uh, we're almost done with that. We're, we're literally finishing up sort of the last few features on that. We're getting done. So a lot of this work I've been able to sort of be routine and say, okay, this is work that is coming from our old system where a lot of usability knowns, so to speak, are there. We know what our customers like. We know what our customers don't like. We've been able to talk with them. It's not like building a new feature where you're starting completely from scratch. Um, Ground zero. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've built in those processes to say, okay, when we're bringing a feature over from, you know, our old application, what do I need to do? Well, I need to you know, talk to our customers, talk to our relationship managers, find out what they like, what they don't like, what's necessary to bring over, and, you know, then get into my design process of essentially going anywhere from the low fidelity design all the way through our, you know, supporting our development, QA, and, and deployment process, you know, different sort of steps within there. Um, but I've set that routine for myself just based off of what's worked well, and it's certainly been trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, and with our new features, we're starting to get 
quite a few of those. And it's, it's been a challenge because, you know, working on new functionality, you, you have those unknown unknowns. You don't, <laughs> you don't know what else is out there. Yeah. And especially in a financial app world, there's so much uh, competition that there's a lot of differing theories on what works best and why. Um, that it, it becomes hard to uh, sort of separate some of that out and you have to spend some time doing it and it's harder to have that routine. Yeah. So how do you get to the truth in, in those instances? Well, you know, I think the the first thing is to always ask, why are you doing this? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because I was reading um, one of your Facebook posts about portfolios last night and, you know, answering that first question of, First and foremost, why was this work done in the first place? <laughs> right. right. Why, why should I care about this? Right, exactly. Why should I care about this? And, and you have to ask yourself the same question. Why should, why should my customers care about this? Why are we doing this? What, what goal are we trying to fill? And then you have to figure out, okay, well, well, how are we going to do this? What, what tools and resources do I have available at my disposal that are going to help me towards that solution? Yeah. And sometimes, depending upon you know, your tech stack or where you're working, you'll have quite a few more tools than, than where you will have in other places. You know, for me, I'm, I'm a bit hamstrung in that we don't have much in the way of, of analytics. Mm. Um, so I can't go into our old you know, application and say, you know, look at some of the analytics and say, you know, this is a potential place for pain. It has to be a lot of, by necessity, getting in front of users and, and talking with them. Uh, which I still think is the best way to do UX anyway. Because that's a big blind spot otherwise. Right. And I, I don't think you can do UX really without getting in front of your, your users. I agree. That, that has to be part of the, the core of the process. You know, if, if you're not talking to users, you're, you're really doing UI work at that point in time. That's right. And you're guessing. Right. You are. All right. You really are. No matter what you call it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're guessing. <laughs> Definitely. And it's one of those things where, you know, especially when we, when we talk about working ahead in our organization, which has been a big drive for us is sort of get ahead of our backlog and try and figure out, you know, what new features we have coming down the pipe. Yeah. You know, if I'm not involved early enough and they're coming to me, you know, a day before we, we get into our, our refinement areas and saying, hey, you know, we have this particular issue that we've run across or, you know, we didn't think to involve you. And now we have, need your opinion. You know, I can make an educated guess about, you know, what sort of might work, but I'm always there to tell them, hey, I really appreciate being involved, but you got to get this to me earlier because I can't do the research and work that I need to make sure that I'm giving a good suggestion unless I have enough time to actually work on it. And realistically, for new features, you know, one or two days is not nearly enough time, uh, especially given the scope and size of, of what we work on. No, when, when you do get the chance to interface with actual users, how does that happen? How does it work? So um, we have about 180 different uh, registered investment advisors um, that are direct clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk uh, directly with our relationship managers, um, which is a, a group that's kind of responsible for helping them with our, our web app and answering sort of any questions. So we get a lot of feedback you know, coming from our clients through our RMs. And if there's something in particular there that I've, you know, find relevant to a project that I've been working on or, uh, you know, perhaps a future feature that I know we'll be, we'll be working on, it's very easy for me to go to my RM and say, hey, you know, I, I really appreciate this feedback. This is something that's very relevant to what we're doing. Can I get some time with the client to talk with them? And they'll help me arrange something where we can actually go and, and, and talk with those folks. That's excellent. Oh, absolutely. It's 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 a huge advantage in this industry that we have a very captive audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have people that, and a very small captive audience too. I mean, 180, you know, RIAs, we have certainly thousands of users, but 180 sort of different uh, organizations that have bought in uh, to us. And very specific as well, because right. you're in a B2B situation. 
that use is very specific and very contextual and very targeted. Right. Absolutely. And the people are with us because they want to be with us. You know, they, they chose us yeah. um, and chose us for a reason. So it's, yeah. it's very easy for us to reach out and say, hey, do you want to be a part of making this better? And the response is almost always a resounding yes. I, I'd love to be involved. You know, I think sometimes, especially in business, there's that sort of uh, thought that you know maybe UX testing is you know annoying our customers or yeah. um, you know it's it's going to detract from our relationship and it never does. People want to help. They want to make those pieces of their life that they've bought into better. Could not agree more. And I'm going to tell you, even at this point, I still don't understand what that reticence is really about. There's this fear <laughs> to go across that line and involve customers. And like you said, I think there's fear that it's going to somehow damage the relationship. And I got to tell you, I still don't get it. <laughs> I'm pushing 50 and I still don't get hey, it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I understand, man. I'm, it's, it's, I, I, I was just saying, I don't really know what it is either. I, I think, you know, for me in, in one aspect or another, pretty much throughout my entire career, I've been talking with people, you know, I've been, Obviously, back I've talked a lot about working on the phones with Nordstrom. You know, I worked as a customer service associate for a long time, so I have those communication skills to talk with people and sort of get my my point across, and I feel very comfortable with that. But I think in, in people who haven't had that sort of getting in front of the client's experience um, at, at any level um, are, are are hesitant because they don't want to hack off their customer base, and you know, I understand that because. You know, obviously, the last thing you want to do is, is upset your customers. But I think it, there's this equation, especially in American society, that, that any sort of ask uh, for you know handing over some of your your personal private time is is necessarily something that's going to be uh, negatively received. Um, is 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 a kind of a theory that's sort of embedded in 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 our society, and yeah. it's not always that way. But you don't know that it's not that way unless you actually are going out and, <laughs> and trying to talk with customers. Yeah, right. I think people are, you know, in most cases, people are itching to tell you what could make their lives easier. I mean, I, it's interesting that you're talking about financial industry. And, for instance, I had a, an experience with a very large insurance organization. Same situation. They had agents all over the country. And we suspected in the very first meeting what I usually do is I make them walk me through a process, right? Mm -hmm. Boxes and arrows, like tell me how someone gets in, then they do this, take me through their day. And we did a real quick rough diagram and we needed to erase the whiteboard three times in order to complete it. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is, this is only one workflow. It's a very basic part of this person's work day because we wanted to start with the thing that they spend 80% of their time doing. Right. And the three of us sort of looked at each other and said, okay, <laughs> there's, there's a story here. Um, and they were reluctant about it, but they did finally say, okay, we'll, we'll set you up with, you know, different agents in different areas and, and you can have these conversations. Some of them were in person and some of them were remote. To a person, when they described the process to us, were we to use the same whiteboard to, to map it out, you know, what they were after and what they really needed, right. it would have been a quarter of that space. Wow. You know, once, not three right. times. <laughs> right. <laughs> once. So the conversation you have after that is, okay, think about how much money and how much effort and how many people are involved in all these extra steps. Right. From a purely financial perspective, had we not asked this question, okay, here's where you are. And when that happens, the sort of light bulb goes off. Right. And uh, I, I guess what I'm getting to is, in your opinion, how do you go about 
telling that story up front before you have that interaction, before you can prove to a client, hey, this is worthwhile. It's really going to benefit you right, in, in some meaningful way. How do you have that conversation in a way that they're more receptive to it? Right. I mean, you, you have to be able to show some sort of tangible result. And, and you have to be able to have shown some sort of historical success or at least potential for historical success um, that's, that's relevant to the client. Um, I, I think uh, UX is, is somewhat grouped in sort of the same sort of lump um, a lot of times as a, as a lot of artistic work. And, yeah. and there is, is certainly some artistic work that's, that's done with UX, but it's seen as sort of this sort of very flowy, ethereal thing that, that's sort of hard to pin a value to. But you know, if you can show that there's a value to it um, and, and not just a subjective value, but an objective value, that's the way I found to get to get buy-in. In the end, when I was working for Nordstrom Bank and pitching that that first system, uh, I was, you know, came up with a calculation. I did some tests on my own to say, you know, based upon how fast I am and what I'm working on, when I use the system, I average 24 seconds per call faster um, than when I don't use the system. Mm -hmm. um, and if you extrapolate that out over our 300 call center workers, you know, 365 days a year, whatever the hourly rate was, uh, it was a, a multi-million dollar time-saving proposition. And that took it from being, you know, this idea of, of a guy that was sitting there at his computer, you know, between phone calls, just working on something that he's been told not to work on. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and moved it from, from that to being something that was worthwhile doing. And showing that value, especially to my CEO, is what got them to say, okay, that's it. This is what we're looking for. Go do it. Go make it happen. Right. And this is always my mantra. Okay. You have to find a way to have a conversation about dollars and cents. Absolutely. Right. Because it changes the, the, the temperature in the room almost instantly. Yeah. That, that realization that what you're doing affects their bottom line is, is a very stark one. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where you're, you're right. You can, you can feel, physically feel the mood of the room change when you start talking about dollars and cents, especially with with stakeholders that are really involved with, you know, looking out for those, those sort of bottom line uh, numbers. Yeah. I mean, I, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen that, right? You're, you're in a room and you've got, let's say, you know, maybe four or five stakeholders, executives, usually at the beginning, um, sitting at a table, right? right? And, and at least four of them are not paying attention to a word that I'm saying. <laughs> okay. They're looking, they're looking down at their phones. They're scribbling on a notepad. I could, you know, I'm walking around the room so I can see what they're doing. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> they're like, whatever, are we done yet? <laughs> and the minute, the minute I trot out a figure that either represents cost savings or potential profit or potential market share percentage, or all of a sudden the three heads go up. Right. Like, what, what did he just say? <laughs> and I also believe that one of the things that a lot of us don't think about often enough, and, and I learned this much later in my career than I wish I had. But there's a high degree of self-interest in everything that's happening within an organization. So for every one of those folks at the table, yeah, they're all there for the business, certainly. At the same time, I think you also have to figure out how it connects to their world personally. Right. Right. What, what's hanging over their head? What pressures are they dealing with? What problems are they experiencing that they personally just would like to see gone mm -hmm. so that their stress level improves? Absolutely. Yeah, and I, th I think that one really good way to kind of reflect that was there was a Dilbert cartoon. I used to read Dilbert when I was in my 
early teens, which shows you how much of a nerd I could be. But <laughs> me too. Um, <laughs> oh, hey, we got something in common. That's great. And I love it. Scott Adams is hilarious at, at any age. But yeah, that's <laughs> there was a, a a strip that I remember reading that was essentially saying that uh, employment used to be like a Christianity model, where if you were good in your employment life, you'd be rewarded in the afterlife of retirement. And now <laughs> it's more of like a, a Hindu model that if you're good at your current job, you'll be reincarnated into a, a better job. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and that's that stuck with me because you have to make these things relevant to individuals. It's the lack of loyalty that, that some companies have shown to the individuals has really been reflected a lot in the workforce. Yeah. Uh, whether or not we like that is, is a completely another conversation entirely. But unless you're able to make things relevant to the people sitting in front of you and not the business as a whole, you're never going to capture their attention. Yeah, agreed. I have another question for you that I probably should have asked much earlier, <laughs> but whatever. Um, it just hit me. And then uh, I want to get to some, some hot seat stuff. Sure. But I, since I looked at your profile before this, I, I, you know, know that you sort of came up in journalism right. and, and writing. Mm-hmm. What I'm, in, I'm interested in hearing your take on the connection between language and good design, good user experience, and also the ability as a, as a creative professional of any kind, and I include developers in this, to be able to write, okay, to, to express yourself in that way. In your mind, do you think that there are threads that run through all that where where the the journalism background the writing background the command of language is an asset and if so how absolutely i think you know there there's kind of a core skill set that you need in order to be a an effective um technology professional and specifically a protect, uh, an effective ux professional and one of those real sort of sort of cores is being a good communicator we are in such a unique position because we sit at sort of the middle of so many different pieces of our business. We're talking to a variety of different stakeholders. So we might be talking to you know, people directly, you know, talking with our customers or people that are looking out in production or you know, whatever the case might be. And we're, we're talking to our, our developers and we're talking to our QA associates and we're talking to our customers. And we have this sort of unique um, opportunity to sort of synthesize all that information and be that sort of uh, you know, communication warehouse and really move things forward within the organization for our customers. Um, so, you know, you have to be able to do that uh, to be successful. Um, I, I think that 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 communication skill, that ability to synthesize that information, hand it off to the right people and, and keep things moving forward is what really separates good UX professionals from, from great UX professionals. You know, I also think that studying journalism was, important for me because it taught me how to write and so much of corporate life is unfortunately writing emails <laughs> it's it's uh yeah, yeah. yeah my my job before this i was working uh for a company called holland square group which was um i was contracted out permanently to another company called four winds interactive and they make interactive digital uh signage so if you've ever gone to a a hotel and, and walked up to, you know, a big touchscreen sign that showed you where you could go for breakfast or, you know, when flights were leaving or that sort of thing. That's the, the kind of designs I was creating and, and the kind of signage I was, I was developing. And they would have us working uh, at any given time. Uh, I think the fewest amount of projects I ever had once I got fully ramped up was 40. And the most I ever had was approaching 100 with, you know, 100 different clients. Wow. Um, wow. And so... On any given day, 
I was spending six hours writing emails and two hours designing, developing, uh, <laughs> actually <laughs> doing, doing work. work yeah. um, and uh, it was great because I got so much practice at getting in those, those communication skills and learning how to communicate uh, more with sort of those high-value, high-class customers. Um, but uh, obviously quite a bit of challenge, um, and especially a challenge if, if I wasn't a good writer and it wasn't something that I felt comfortable doing. Um, so, you know, absolutely you need to be comfortable writing and you need to be comfortable expressing yourself or you're going to find yourself in, in some really hard situations. Yeah, I agree. I think the connection is sort of apples to apples, right? I think that you have to be able to have some command of language. And I don't mean you have to be, you know, the Ernest Hemingway of <laughs> user experience. You, you simply, you have to be able to speak plainly and clearly in a way that people understand it. Right. I think the best rule that you can give anybody for writing those emails is five sentences or less. Yeah. If you can't explain what you're trying to explain in five sentences or less, it, it shouldn't be an email. It should be a conversation. Right. Oh. <laughs> That's a good rule. In fact, I'm probably going to adopt that because uh, I, 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 write, I write for both emails. I mean, I really do. And then I catch myself and I think, oh, my God, no one's going to read all this. No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it's sort of the nature of email. We get the, you know, you get those five sentence emails. You go, OK, X, Y, Z. I know what I need and I'm moving on. You get the emails that are two pages long and you revert back to that sort of web mentality of I'm going to scan through here to find out what I need and, and discard the other 90 percent of what's on this page. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where that's a rule that I followed in it. And I was taught by, um, uh, one of my, uh, coworkers when I was working at, uh, at Nordstrom that has served me tremendously well. And it's the one that I always pass on, uh, to anyone who's asking, you know, about skills for writing business emails and, and, and business communications in general. Well, it's an excellent rule. And I, I'm honestly, I'm going to adopt it this point forward. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. If I get an email that's more than five sentences from you, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pick up the phone and give you a call. <laughs> you did it again. We need to talk. And I'm going to be doing, yeah, doing okay. voicemails, you know, Joe, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what's the tit of an email? Why do we need to talk? <laughs> yeah, really. You know, like when you get your graded paper back and has a frowny face on it, please see me. Yeah, or the big, uh, the big red question mark was the one I always got. You know, <laughs> that, what, what, <laughs> what? Uh, what do you mean by big red question mark? How am I supposed to fix that? <laughs> right. My, I, I, I went to school with uh, a guy, and I'll never forget this. We had, we had one instructor in particular who would just throw out the, the, the strangest sort of non sequiturs when you'd ask for, for feedback, you know, or direction. Mm -hmm. And I remember he came back to the table one time, and, and he goes – my favorite kind of comment is the uncomment. <laughs> it's like, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do with this. And, and it was just a weird situation. You know, you never knew how to react or what it was you were supposed to do. Right. Well, especially when you're supposed to fix those, those mistakes, right? It's the first draft and they give you back that rough draft with those sort of, you know, big red question marks. Or I don't know what I'm supposed to do on it. And you go, okay, well, uh, I guess I could give it a try. Right. You know, I was very lucky to go to a school that, that um, I went to Devlin High School in in uh, Denver, which, uh, shout out to the Jaguars out there, but uh, it was uh, a school that was very, very steeped in teaching its students how to write and how to critically uh, read and evaluate information, um, which I also think is, Excellent. is you know, kind of on that communication thing, uh, you know, one of those big pieces that we need to know. Dude. And uh, you never start your kids too early on that. Agreed. Agreed, agreed, agreed. So let me ask you some quick 
hot seat questions to sort of put you on the spot a little bit. Absolutely. Acronyms, yes or no? Oh, I can't stand acronyms. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> I had a we we have so many. I mean, you know, especially here in in our in our universe, we have acronyms for everything in the tech world and everything in the financial world. And when those two worlds collide, I had no idea what anybody was talking about. My first probably three weeks here, because nobody would tell me what the acronyms were, and I was <laughs> probably a little more timid than I should have been than asking about them. I'm like, oh, I should know this. Yeah, and see, that's my problem with, with them in general. It, you instantly make people feel dumb and and right. embarrassed to sort of ask what's going on. It's like, you know, you're in some exclusive club that they're not. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I'm someone that hates to ask for help, which has been both a, a blessing and a curse. Sure. So asking what those acronyms, you know, it always takes me probably three or four times of hearing the acronym before I go, hmm, I, don't, I don't know what this is. All right. Thank God for Google. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what word or phrase do you say way too much? Um, that's not a bad choice, is what my mom <laughs> pointed out to me the other day. Um, I say that a lot. Uh, if I had a catchphrase, that would be it. It's not a bad choice. Um, I was like, why did you just say it's a good choice? I'm like, well, it may not be a good choice, but it's not a bad one. <laughs> it's very diplomatic. Right. Absolutely. Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, communication wise, I'm, I'm very good at is being a diplomat, being a peacemaker and, and finding those, those areas that, uh, you know, we all have common ground on, which leads to a lot of phrases like, that's not a bad choice. That's not a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing that one down, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've, I've learned two I'm, things from you, Doug. This is fantastic. Well, I'm, you're, you're, you're slowly closing the gap between things I learned from you and things you learned from me. So we only have a few thousand more to go. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> Hopefully they're not bad habits. Um, tell me something that you are not good at at all. Oh, man. I mean, the list of things I'm not good at would fill several thousand books. Uh, all of us. <laughs> let, me, let me rephrase it. Something that you've had to do more than once that you're not good at. That's tough. Yeah, I want, because we were just talking about it, I want to talk about that asking for help, but we, you know, we, we already kind of talked about that. Yeah, it does count. Um, for, you know, for me, I'd have to say it's basketball. I'm a terrible basketball player. I'm, I'm usually good at just about any sport that I pick up. I've always had this kind of natural athletic ability. I cannot make a shot to save my life. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm five, six, and three quarters. It's important to get that three quarters up there when you're my, <laughs> my height. And uh, <laughs> that does not make itself uh, very good for basketball. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm five foot six and shrinking, and I am infinitely worse than you'll ever be. At basketball. <laughs> if we ever play a horse, a game of horse, at least we know we have a way to kill off a couple of hours. So. Oh my, it would go on for like <laughs> a, a half a day. I mean, well, know your strengths, right? Know what you're good at, and do it. And, and for you and I, we'll stay. We'll stay away from basketball. That's right. That's right. Um, what is one thing you do, or one talent that you have that nobody knows about? Ooh, I share my talents a lot, mm-hmm. and probably more than I should. I'm sure people are. Uh, there are people out there, my friends and family, who probably want me to stop trying to share things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but uh, I think my, my talent that I'm most proud of, that I think the fewest people know about, is, is photography. Um, okay. I, I was a video journalist when I worked with the Broncos. I was down on the sideline for every game with the camera, which was a lot of fun, and that sort of sparked an interest in me. And it, it actually took years. I actually... Uh, when I got this job, was able to buy my first real professional camera um, and start working towards getting better at the craft. Before that was whatever I could do with my phone, <laughs> essentially, which doesn't always lend itself to great pictures. Sure. Uh, but it was a lot of practicing composition and looking for those 
those opportunities would certainly help build some skills. So I've got my I've got my nice little now uh, I think I'm actually listed on Instagram as uh, crappy Denver photog. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, because uh, I guess that shows how much uh, skill, I hold that skill in in regard. But uh, I, I you know post my my photos up there and and have a little community of people that uh, follow me around and occasionally like what I do, which is which is always heartening. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's very cool. So, last question: What is your prediction for the Denver Broncos this year? Oh my goodness, uh, we're we're going downhill in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a Cleveland fan. I don't want to. Oh hear it. yeah, well that's true. Well, hey, we've we've got uh, we've got the guy as our backup who may be our starter soon, who wasn't good enough to be the Cleveland Browns starting quarterback in right. Brock Osweiler. So I mean, you know, that's that's never a good sign. No, it isn't. Um, and, and I should say, Trevor. Trevor Simeon's a, a bit hamstrung. The offensive line is is has been rough, especially we lost a couple of offensive tackles and a backup offensive tackle yeah. against San Diego. Yeah. We were we were down three out of our five top wideouts. Um, I, I told my wife even before the season started we'd be lucky to go six and twelve. Um, and you know when we got up into the power rankings, you know after you know, first four weeks we were number three or four in some of those power rankings. I said we're going to go downhill in a hurry. And sure <laughs> enough, we did. So I, I'll stick with that six and twelve okay. prediction as much as I don't like it. Um, but I think, given where things could end up, that might be optimistic. So fingers crossed. Go Broncos. I still love them. I'll always love them. But that's that's what I have to go. Project. We must have hope, Doug. Yeah, there's always hope. The, the Cleveland Browns are are proof that there's always hope. There's still the, any fan in in that Cleveland stadium. It's hope springs eternal. That's right. I, I, I console myself, you know, saying that. Well, see, I'm teaching my my kids a lesson, and you know that when you're loyal to something, and you know you have to you have to stick to your convictions, and you know, win or lose, you can't just only like winners and all that good stuff, right? I don't know if I believe it, yeah. but that's but that's what I say. <laughs> well, you know. It's- uh, with, with the five-month-olds in the house, I'm starting to think about all those different lessons I need to learn to teach, too. And so this year, I just want to completely turn off the Broncos. And <laughs> for that reason, I'm like, no, this will do Henry Goodwood at Boulder as I flip on the TV and scream it at it for an hour and a yeah, half, two right. hours uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll be, before the apathy sets in. It'll be seen as normal. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully uh, hopefully, I can relieve myself of some of that extra extra screaming at the TV. I'm pretty sure that doesn't make for a very healthy environment growing up. (laughs) We'll try to work on getting rid of that. It's what we do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, sir, I I truly enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed talking to you. And I think that you are absolutely a positive force uh, in in the online communities that I've seen uh, and in general. I think there is a definite shortage of people in the world who are willing to be overly generous with their time, with their stories, with their experiences, uh, and with their advice. And I salute you for doing that. Yeah. You know, thanks very much for having me on. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope we'll get a chance to to talk a bit more. You're, you're a wonderful force yourself for good. And, uh, you know, I'm great to be associated with that. And kind of along those same lines, if anybody, um, you know, wants to ask me any questions or, or get involved with me, or if I can help out anybody out there who's looking to get started or, or grow their career, uh, feel free to reach out to me, um, you know, Doug at DenverUXer dot com uh, is my email address. You can find me on Twitter at fifty two eighty underscore cs, and obviously on the UX Mastery community, uh, which is community dot dot com, is just Doug Collins. I, I really want to be as as helpful as I can. 
Uh, and then hopefully, after listening to me for an hour, um, I feel a little bit more approachable. <laughs> so please feel free to re- please feel free to reach out with whatever I can do for you. And, and and Joe, thanks again for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure, and and to be involved with somebody who's as experienced and 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 knowledgeable as you, and to receive such kind words is, is a real gift to me. So I appreciate your time, and and thank you so much just for inviting me to be a part of this. Absolutely, pleasure was all mine. Oh, thank you very much, Joe. All right, take care, my friend. Thank you. You too. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope hearing these stories provides some useful perspective and encouragement, along with a reminder that you're not alone out there. Before I go, I want you to know that you can find show notes and links to the things mentioned during our conversation by visiting givegoodux.com podcast. You'll also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it's people like you who make UX work.